This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. If you're interested in misunderstanding a text, there are a number of ways to do it. One of the best ways I know how is to ignore a text genre. By genre, I mean the type of book or literature that it is. If you read Harry Potter like proper history, you're going to run into some problems. The same is true, perhaps especially true, of the book of Revelation. If you mix up the genre, you're going to mess up the meaning. Now, apocalypse is the very first word in the very first verse of the book of Revelation. It tells us of the type of book that it is. You've probably heard that word before apocalyptic, perhaps in the context of a popular movie or novel. Apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic stories are about a remnant of humans figuring out how to survive after some kind of disaster, like a pandemic or a nuclear war. So think about stories like The Matrix or The Road or I Am Legend or A Canticle for Leibowitz. Apocalyptic stories show us the death of one world and the birth of another. They're filled with action, dramatic symbolism. They tell of the battle between good and evil as a new society is coming to be, is coming into existence. And these types of stories are usually set in the distant future, but they're also always about us right now. And the scriptures are full of apocalyptic literature. We see it in the prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel. We see it in sections of the gospel and in the epistles. And we see it especially here in the book of Revelation. This is an apocalyptic text. Now in the Bible, the word apocalypse means a revelation, disclosing or unveiling. The veil of appearances is removed so that we can see through to the realist reality. Sometimes it's only through the most fantastic visions that we can grasp what's really going on in church or at work or around the dinner table. The visions that we have in Revelation are relayed to us by a man called John. John was a pastor of first century churches, and he's exiled on a small island, the Isle of Patmos, in the Aegean Sea, because the gospel he was preaching proved to be a threat to Roman power. So they sent him on this island to shut him up. A new world was being born, but the churches that John pastored were seriously struggling. External threats like persecution, internal threats like division and corruption were potentially tearing the church apart. And the Christians that were part of these churches were tempted to quit. And so John, the revelator, records a series of visions where God provides a heavenly perspective on their earthly affairs. And he does this not as a fortune teller, but as a pastor. And the purpose is to help his churches stay on the narrow way. So for a flicker of a moment, the future is unveiled. In Revelation 7, we see all the saints of human history 
Everyone who has ever walked with God is gathered around the gravitational center of time and space, the throne of God and the Lamb. We get a sneak peek into the promised future. It's like our eyes are peering through the small keyhole of a door that's not yet open to us. And as we peek through the keyhole, what is it that we see? Well, we see the greatest crowd ever assembled. The energy and the excitement levels, the sheer numbers make the 80,000 fans at the final match of the last World Cup look like the small crowd of parents at my seven-year-old son's championship soccer game this past week at Little Anatoly Field in Morningside. It's like we're looking down from the Goodyear blimp and we catch a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. And this kingdom is filled with stunning juxtapositions. In verse 14, we see a kind of heavenly alchemy. The saints' robes are washed in blood. And when these robes emerge from the blood, rather than having crimson stains, they are washed as white as snow. And in verse 17, we see that though the crowd is as numerous as the stars in the sky, God sees each one face to face. Every single cheek is touched by the hand of God as he wipes away the salty tears of earthly sorrow. And then again in verse 17, in a remarkable twist, the lamb has become our shepherd. This kingdom is full of surprises, and as we scan this heavenly scene, we see that all eyes are fixed on the lamb in worship. Now, their attention is on the Lamb, but ours is actually drawn to the multitude. In verse 13, one of the elders asks John, Who are these people? Where do they come from? And with this question, I think we are invited to learn from those gathered around the throne and the Lamb. And I want to highlight this morning three promises that God gives us in this vision of those gathered before the throne. The three promises are unity, purity, and victory. So the first one, unity. In verse 9, we read, After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now the first thing we see is that this is a very diverse group. The age to come is populated by saints from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. Now, I'm not sure how John could tell these groups apart. They must have had something that distinguished them. Perhaps different physical features, maybe different styles of robe. Maybe John could hear their prayers and the things that they were singing, and they were praying and singing in different languages. Well, however he knew, what we see here is that John is celebrating the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. Through his seed, all peoples of the earth are blessed. Now, there's something fascinating about these four designations, nation, tribe, people, and language. The same group is listed three times together in the book of Revelation in chapter 5, chapter 11, and chapter 13. And each time this same list appears, the order of the list is different. It's really interesting. 
It's as if God is telling us that while diversity is essential in the kingdom of God, no one category has supremacy. Your nation or your people or your tribe or your language is not the most important thing. And it's hard to overstate how important this is. You see, from the very beginning, the church was always at risk of splintering from within, from things like tribalism. We see this in the New Testament with the division of Jew and Gentile. And then a thousand years later in the great schism of East and West. And then again, of course, in the Reformation with the division between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants. And of course, we see it now in America where there is no single line of division. The church is fractured in 10,000 ways. Well, this vision shows us that the glue that ultimately binds the church together is not shared language or culture. It's not a common race or ethnicity. It's not alignment in politics or denominations. That which unifies us is the Lamb. Our center is the Lamb of God. And this passage is not a playbook for reconciling our differences and our divisions, It's a picture. What we see is a celebration of unity without uniformity. A celebration of unity without uniformity. The people are fully together without dissolving the good things that make each nation and tribe and people and language distinct, especially in the ways that they worship Jesus. We see these good and faithful differences are honored. They're celebrated because these magnify the glory of the Lamb, who is the Savior of the whole world. Unity is the first promise that we see in this vision. And as we keep reading in verse 9, we see this multi-ethnic multitude of saints is robed in white. Now these white robes symbolize purity, and that's the second promise for us this morning. Now, I know purity is a loaded term. Many of us who grew up in the church in the late 90s and the early 2000s have been damaged by so-called purity culture. Well, if that's you, please stick with me. The first century people, first century culture was very concerned about purity, about holiness. In the New Testament, we see this in the distinction between clean and unclean people. Purity is all about who is in and who is out, who's an insider, who's an outsider, who is worthy to be counted among God's people, who's worthy to be in the presence of a holy God. And Jesus speaks to this a lot. His message and ministry radically transforms notions of purity. No longer is it based on the Mosaic law, on ethnic identity markers like circumcision or purity codes like dietary restrictions. You see, purity is not an accident of birth. It's not determined by your family of origin, your ethnicity, or your race. This idea of blood purity is a heresy. Purity is not attained by doing good things or avoiding bad ones. In Isaiah 64, the prophet tells us that apart from God, 
We are all unclean. No one is pure. And our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, he says. So how are the saints made pure, made holy? What qualifies them to stand before the throne of God? Verse 14 shows us that the only thing that commends them before the Holy and Mighty One is this. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It is the blood of Jesus alone that can wash us and make us clean. Nothing else can do this. This is the beating heart of Christianity. The saints robed in white are holy, not because they are sinless, but because their sins are forgiven. Listen to what that means. It means that we are loved not because we are pure. We are pure because we are loved. Unity, purity. The third promise is victory. We continue to the end of verse 9. This crowd of saints in white robes have something in their hands. They're carrying palm branches. Now, palm branches are a very dense symbol. And here, the symbol does double duty. First, in the ancient world, palms were a sign of victory. Think about Palm Sunday. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The crowd that welcomed him were waving palms to herald a new and victorious king over the city, over God's people. And the second thing that palms symbolize is a Jewish festival. The palms allude to the Jewish festival of booths or tabernacles. You see, in the Old Testament, the Jews lived in an agrarian society. They relied on farming. They were farmers. And this was the final harvest festival of their year. And so the people spent seven days celebrating the harvest of crops that they brought in because these crops sustained their life. They would be able to live for another year. And during this week-long party, the Jews would make booths made of palm branches, and they would do this to remind them of the Exodus. After God rescued the Jews from Egyptian slavery, they lived in tents made of palm branches in the wilderness. And the palms that they made, the booths that they made, would remind them of their salvation, how God provided a new home for them. And by having the saints, seeing the saints uh, with palm branches in their hands, John takes this rich symbol and he transforms it. The palms point to God's ultimate harvest when all the saints from the north and the south and from the east and the west will be gathered in on the last day. And the palms point to the final victory when God will finally free us from slavery to sin and death and provide us with a new and eternal home in him. This great victory is accomplished, of course, not by military might, but by a lamb who was slain. And with these promises in this vision, God assures us that the church will be one. She will be holy. She will be triumphant but she isn't yet. When we map our experience of, of experiences of church onto this heavenly vision, 
that much is obvious. The church right now is but a shadow of the glorious reality that will one day be unveiled. That can be really encouraging, but can also be really discouraging, especially for those of us who have been burned and hurt and traumatized by the church and the church's leaders. But this is why we need this apocalyptic vision. The purpose is not simply to show us the future. It's to help us live right now in the midst of a world and in the midst of a church that's very messy. Because just like the first century, the 21st century church is fractured by division and plagued by sin. And many of us are tempted to quit. Well, the point of these promises is to fill us with hope for the future so we don't fall in the present. This apocalyptic vision pulls us to our appointed future, and it sustains us on the hard road of faith as we walk with this end, this vision, in sight. Now, in just a few moments, we're going to have the great privilege of participating in the rite of holy baptism. This sacrament is a means of grace. It does what it symbolizes. To paraphrase the great preacher and theologian, the Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman, in baptism, we we receive a fontal, as in the baptismal font, we receive a fontal sense of belonging, worth, and hope. One that he says cannot be destroyed by any of life's outrages. In baptism, the promises of unity and purity and victory become ours. The baptismal font is the front door to the church. That's why in so many churches in classical architecture, the baptismal font is near the front of the nave of a church. In this rite, the baptized receive a new identity and a new community. And we receive them as beloved children into the family of God. In just a moment, we'll stand before these children of promise, and they will stand or be held before us. On this All Saints Sunday, we remember that as they are baptized, they become a part of the church, capital C, and this little church family. They are received into the communion of saints and into our humble community. One that's filled with saints and sinners, joy and sorrow, hope and fear, questions and answers. And we will make vows together to do all in our power to encourage these little ones in the faith, to serve as models and mentors and friends to them, fully expecting that they will teach us as much as we teach them. In baptism, they become our fellow pilgrims on the way to Revelation 7. They need us. We need need them. Together we will fix our eyes on the Lamb who is our shepherd as he guides us from the waters of baptism to springs of the water of life. These waters have the same source, the throne of God and the Lamb. Amen.